The path to get that first job right out of college has changed. It is a great time to be looking for a position. I'm really a lot less conversations are happening where it's like, what can you give us? And a lot more conversations of what we can provide you as we're trying to recruit you to join our team. And did you spend four years studying a new language, but you don't remember any of it? We notice enormous gaps in the language learning space. It's all too frequent to hear people say, I've studied Spanish for four years in high school, and I cannot speak a word. This is The Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or a business pivot, or just getting underway and looking for some help. Hear from experts who've been there and done that. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, Greg Stoller talks with Aaron Murdoch, financial manager and student advisor at the Computer and Data Sciences Center at Boston University, about how employers' attitudes toward attracting new hires has changed. But first, Matty Amin, founder of Lit, has a new way to really learn a new language, an input-based language acquisition tool. Here's Greg. Thank you, Don. No matter what platform you're on, listening to the radio, online, or watching television, everyone touts the ease of learning a foreign language. And trust me, from someone who speaks several of them, I know how challenging yet rewarding this can be. But do any of these actually work over the long term? Well, I think our next guest will have something to say about that. He's only in the pre-seed financing stage and he already has 30,000 active users. Welcome to Maddie Amin, the founder of Lit to the Language of Business. Hi, Greg. Maddie, what does Lit, which is spelled L-I-T, do? Lit is an online platform that facilitates language proficiency, language acquisition through digital stories. And how and why did you start the company? We started the company about two and a half years ago. And one of the reasons is that we notice enormous gaps and opportunities for impact in the language learning space. It's all too frequent to hear people say, I've studied Spanish for four years in high school and I cannot speak a word. So we looked at that and we looked at market research and worked with hundreds of teachers to figure out what was wrong. And research and these teachers confirmed that true language acquisition cannot happen without exposure to input that's both communicative and comprehensible. Now you might ask what comprehensible input is. Comprehensible input is a message comprised of whole complete language with context that a listener understands. Teachers are struggling to find comprehensible input to deliver in their classrooms and this is where Lit comes in. We facilitate language acquisition by providing an entire platform of compelling controlled input in the form of digital stories, activities, what we call coursework activities that utilize high frequency vocabulary and common language functions. And so we have combined the content teachers are looking for with a single stop platform for delivery, grading, and progress tracking. Pedro, por que espanol? Why did you start with Spanish? That's a great question. We wanted to test this, this model in the US. And one of the languages that are taught in most schools is the Spanish language. And so we wanted to see early adopters in that space. And so we launched with the Spanish language and we build it under a scope and sequence that follows the American Council for Teaching Foreign Language. And so we first built our beta product in Spanish language, rolled it out and had tremendous traction. And do you have plans to expand perhaps to other languages? Absolutely, that's a great question. We are actively looking at exploring other languages. In fact, about two weeks ago, we rolled out our English 
product, which is built under the common European framework, their digital stories with the postwork activities. And so on our platform, the digital platform, we have the Spanish product and the English product out live. In preparing for this interview, we understand that you already have 30,000 active users. Congratulations, by the way. What do you attribute then Lit's competitive advantage to be in this very crowded space? There is no shortage of language apps and language platforms. They all recognize the gaps and people are trying to create products to help facilitate language proficiency and acquisition. But what's happening is that popular language learning apps, they tend to gamify small chunks of language and put too much emphasis on low frequency vocabulary and impart what we believe is a piecemeal knowledge of language. Lit's digital library, on the other hand, offers a wide range of topics, practices, and grammatical structures. In addition to our postwork activities, our platform is able to provide customization and a robust platform for teachers to be able to track student progress and meet students at their individual proficiency levels. It all sounds great from a strategic planning perspective, and again, Wonderful that you've got 30,000 active users, but how many of them are actually paying customers so far? We launched a free beta version. The Spanish product was a free beta version, and that has started to generate revenue. So we have teachers who have used up their free beta version, converting into paid subscribers. So we are a post-revenue startup at the moment. That's great. You also mentioned during our pre-interview that you are pre-seed. When you go into Series A or seed financing, where do you hope that your financing is going to come from? We are a Boston-based startup, and so for a seed round, we'll be looking into angel groups or micro VCs in the Boston area, in the Boston ecosystem. If you could look into your own lit crystal ball of sorts, where do you see the company being, say, two to three years from now? We are actively looking at entering the international market. So the Spanish product was for the U.S. We have rolled out our English product for the international market. We recently made a hire in Brazil. And so we are trying to get into the market in Brazil, targeting primarily private schools. And is your own native language mother tongue English or is it something else entirely? It's not English. It's Pashto. And I also speak multiple languages. English would be the fifth one. Wow. What are the other three? So it's Pashto, it's Urdu, Dari, and Urdu and Hindi are very similar, but I can actually read the script as well. So I count that as the additional language. It sounds like you will have a lot of students in multiple languages over the next few years. Hopefully. <laughs> Maddie, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Maddie Amin, the founder of Lit, talking about the business of education and how he is building his company. Thank you for joining us on The Language of Business. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. We heard about Lit, the input-based language acquisition tool. Next up, we hear from Aaron Murdoch, student advisor at the BU Faculty of Computer and Data Sciences, about how the path to get that first job has changed when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top-tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Question has taught me over the past four years. 
The curriculum at Questions is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Question School of Business and, like I said, be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Questrom. We learned about LIT, the input-based language acquisition tool. Now we'll learn about how the path to that first job has changed from both the applicant and the employer's viewpoint. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. How do you advise 700 students at the same time, hoping that each of them has a positive experience from their undergraduate education? We're on location with Aaron Murdoch, who is an academic advisor in the College of Arts and Sciences at Boston University, focused on computer science, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks so much for having me. About five years ago, people took great pride using the term placing students from an employment perspective. Now, these days, depending on who you talk with or the use of that term, it's almost become a negative. What are your thoughts, please, on that, Erin? My advising population is a mix of all class years. So those conversations typically look a little bit different. Those first years, those second years, a lot of it's going to be focused on their coursework, campus resources, things like that. But by the time they get to their junior and senior years, those conversation topics really shift overall. They typically start focusing on those extracurricular opportunities, graduate schools, internships, things like that. And then from there, they really start focusing on life after graduation. I think independence with an emphasis on those existing resources Sources has really become an underlying theme overall. So for instance, that concept of placing students in jobs, that's not really giving them any autonomy to go out there to initiate those conversations, to explore the opportunities that might be available to them and figure out what they're most interested in, as opposed to giving them those resources, making sure that they're familiar with the tools at hand and how to network, how to connect with someone on LinkedIn, things like that but alleviating that concept of placing them in those roles and really just helping provide them with the guidance to succeed in finding them themselves. But if you give those students independence, what happens if some or all of them fall off the radar and you never hear from them again? And unfortunately that does happen, but we take so many different precautions to try to mitigate that as much as possible. Things like consistent check-ins, either once a semester, every couple of weeks, depending on the student, depending on that level of contact that they really need in terms of guidance. I think what's also fantastic is in my role, it just doesn't exist in a silo. Instead of me just being that point of contact, I'm actually able to connect with professors from different disciplines, different areas on campus, but then also those stakeholders such as ISSO, Student Health Services, just to make sure that we're advising and mentoring from a more holistic standpoint and that I'm not only that only point of contact. So much mindshare used to go into getting that elusive first job. But millennials these days, even one or two years out of school, might have three or four different jobs during that time. How do you then prepare somebody for that first job? Or isn't it really as important as it used to be? Yeah, you're speaking to a millennial who has done exactly that over the last couple of years, even at Boston University. 
it honestly makes my conversations with them much easier because it's really de-emphasized that focus of you have to find the job that is the perfect fit for the rest of your life. And instead it's shifted our conversations to finding what is the perfect next step for you right now. So it really does help make it a much more flexible trajectory for them. Maybe we are looking to explore real estate or finance, but then in a couple of years that might shift or you might be able to merge those two in some capacity. So it's really made my job a lot more interesting and having those more dynamic and long-term, but also short-term conversations as well. Now let's talk about things from the employer's perspective. Post-pandemic, what changes have you noticed in the way they do their hiring? It is, my understanding, a great time to be looking for a position. I'm really happy for a lot of our graduating seniors and then some of our graduating grad students as well. I think a lot of the conversations have shifted more towards flexibility, that open-minded approach towards just taking it one step at a time, rolling with the punches. Something I've been seeing is just that increased need for dynamic, adaptable employees that have a range of skill sets that they're really willing to tailor to the job, but don't expect you necessarily to have all those on day one. Obviously, we're seeing a massive uptick in terms of that demand for remote work or at least a hybrid remote environment. But with that, I've also been seeing a lot of expanded data collection, which I'm not sure is necessarily a good thing. I think it depends where you're coming from. So even things like videos out there on how to make sure your mouse is moving while you're doing laundry at home, things like that have definitely become a source of entertainment, but also it just sheds light on that trust issue that we're seeing as well. And then there's definitely been that final increased shift towards employee-centric messaging, so a lot less conversations are happening where it's like, what can you give us? And a lot more conversations of what we can provide you as we're trying to rec recruit you to join our team. And what are some of those features and benefits that they're now offering undergraduate or graduate students? It used to be things like free lunches in the office. That really went away in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. They're starting to get a lot more flexible and have to be a lot more creative with some of those benefits. Things that I've seen is not waiting two years to match retirement benefits. I've also seen some pretty drastic increase in mental health benefits, free or little to no cost to the co-worker colleagues as well. And looking back, students who wanted to work in high tech basically had two choices, the 128 corridor or Silicon Valley. But these days, so many people are working from home. So how are you helping students think through that? It's been really interesting. To name a few, I've been seeing a lot of our students moving to Virginia Beach, Madison, Wisconsin, Durham, North Carolina. So places that you wouldn't really think of as those big techs. So smaller cities overall. I think a lot of that has to do with the lower cost of living, especially with remote, sometimes hybrid options as well, or even companies like WeWork providing that remote space for colleagues to still be connecting. We obviously are here in Boston right now, so we can understand that lower, the attractive lower cost of living expenses. Also, just the allure of trying out a new city, somewhere new, a new community is really attractive to our students. Years ago, when it came to teaching computer science, students were taking Fortran, Pascal, or C+. But these days, universities are offering courses in Java or Python, and in many cases, to non-business students. How do you then prepare students for not only their first job, but maybe their second or third job or their career two or three years post-graduation? I think I'm pretty biased just because obviously I'm also pursuing an MBA. So I really see the benefit to those overlap, both in terms of those coding skills, either soft or hard, but then also those business courses. 
the amount of uptick I've seen in recent years for our students in terms of pursuing those dual degree or even the major and the minor combination amongst the two is really remarkable. So I think a lot of our students are really just looking to find that perfect merger of them. Would you recommend that your computer science students take business classes or vice versa? Oh, absolutely. Obviously, I'm biased just to recap on that. But I think, like I said, the trends are leaning towards it. And I really think it's only a matter of time until we have that more structured overlap that doesn't necessarily involve them completing two separate degrees. Erin, thank you very much. Of course. Thank you. Erin Murdoch, an undergraduate student advisor in the College of Arts and Sciences, focusing on computer science at Boston University. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswe Media. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio production, editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.